Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're reading through Patrick O'Brien's Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron novels. Ian, here we are in the midst of the letter of Mark. Bring us up to speed. Absolutely. Last time, Sir Joseph Blaine had been sharing his plan for helping Jack to get reinstated by engineering a situation where he can take this French frigate, the Diane importantly chosen name. We had heard how Jack had taken, sometime before, taken the merchant prizes from the Spartan and therefore was all of a sudden rich once more. Stephen, meanwhile, had learned that Yellow is in fact going to marry a young Swedish girl and maybe hadn't been cavorting with Diana in quite the same way. Diana, meanwhile, had appeared to have been taking a horse up in a hot air balloon over in Sweden. Stephen had been discussing plans to return the Blue Peter jewel to her in Sweden. And we had spent some lovely time at Ashgrove Cottage with Jack and Sophie and the children, time that had reinforced Jack's desire to be reinstated in the Navy. So with this plan in mind, Jack and Stephen had studied this survey of the harbour of St. Martin's and Jack has been planning how he's going to engage the Diane. And Mike, this week, the plans take a few more steps forward. We get back aboard the surprise. Jack has to deal with a mutiny that's arisen in the midst of a theological cornucopia, this being a time of year when we have cornucopias. And he revises his plans for taking the Diane and methodically sets about testing the old adage that practice makes perfect. Oh, I can't wait. Can't wait. Mm. Can't wait. Well, as always, you know, we we kind of rejoin a little bit in a different place than usual. And at the moment, Jack is being rowed out to the surprise and there were no surprises boats. So he's just gotten a local who's taking him out. And, and he's a little bit worried. Jack knows that in the Navy, a lot of commanders will sneak up on their crew to see if they're working hard. And, and he doesn't want to be seen as that. But he realizes as he gets closer, there's no need to worry because the boat is an unfeigned model of industry, writes O'Brien. And the boatman is, is trying to convince Jack the whole way that he really needs to bring his son onto Jack's crew. You know, Jack needs him for the surprise here. And at the end of this long conversation, as they're approaching the boat, the boatman says, you know, his name is Abel Hayes, not Seth. Hmm. And I think Jack's a little puzzled by this emphasis, but then they pull around the ship and Jack sees this name, Seth, painted in large letters, right on the white band amidships between gun ports 12 and 14. So I think he's a little curious. He comes on board, greets Davidge and West and Martin, who are all better dressed now that they've cashed in their prize money here. <laughs> but they're all looking anxious. And what's going on here? Well, Davidge has got this very stern face on. He goes into the cabin and he reports to Jack, Sir, I am truly concerned to have to report a mutiny aboard. And this doesn't compute with Jack to begin with. He he had noticed, however, an absence of the usual kind of talk and laughter in the crew when he came aboard. He noticed some grim looks, but he's never before heard of the idea of a mutiny, as the text says, aboard a prosperous, busy ship with plenty of shore leave and all the delights that money could buy just at hand. And he notices that the names of the men who are called out as being involved in this mutiny, who are Slade, the Brampton brothers, Mould, Hinckley, Auden and Vaggers, are some of the best of the Shelmastonians, his prize hands. And Davidge gets right to it. He says, 
These people are all Sethians. And Davidge's best explanation of this is that Sethians are a kind of ranter or methody. And he says that they've been to their meeting house. They had dinner on shore. And when they returned to the ship, in some degree of licorice enthusiasm, um, they'd gone over the side and painted this offending word Seth on the side. So ranters and methodies, Mike, we're straight into theology, home territory. Here, tell, tell us what, who, who, who might be ranters and who might be methodies. Yeah, this is this is great. And there's kind of we're pointing back to this time during the Commonwealth. You know, we had the, the Second English Civil War, the execution of King Charles I. Um, and and kind of under Cromwell, religion sort of flourishes a little bit, a lot of yeah. dissenters, a lot of branches. And, and people are trying to kind of figure out how to make sense of society and their place in society here. And the ranters, which was not a self named group, this is what their critics called them, yeah. was one of these groups. They, they had no leaders. They had no organization. They believe that God is in every creature, that Christians are freed by grace from obeying, the, you know, kind of the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, they deny the authority of the church. Wow. Uh, they deny any authority in general. <laughs> God's in every creature, and we can all do as we please. And they believe that sin is a product of the imagination. So if there's kind of no sin, unless we think it is, we're kind of free to do as we please. So, so one critic said they have a general lack of moral values or restraint in worldly pleasures. So there's no restraint in worldly pleasures. I think, you know, this, this was a guy saying it nicely. People said it not so nicely. Sounds a lot like the kind of things I heard during the summer of love in 67, but... Oh. One one historian, J.C. Davis, suggests that the ranters, and, and there were never, you know, anybody can show that very many of them might have been a myth created by conservatives in order to endorse traditional values by comparison with an unimaginably radical other. And I scratched my head and said, no, who would ever do such a thing? Who could imagine? <laughs> <laughs> but the true humor here for me was this idea that here are these free spirit ranters kind of doing whatever they want in theory. And the Methodies, meaning Methodists. And, and of course, if you know any Methodists, you can see mm -hmm. why the two groups would be confused together. <laughs> now, if you know any Methodists, you would say, oh, my gosh, you know, what are you nuts? <laughs> yeah. Clearly very different. Wesley's crew, very different sort of folks here. Um, but I was fascinated to learn that in the mid-19th century, so we're not far off here, ranters was often a term applied separately, you know, not, not to this original group, but to what were called primitive Methodists. They were kind of Methodists that yeah. had taken on this more holiness. Some people would think Pentecostal, but that's, you know, they're kind of also a different holiness thing sort of tradition here. So these people really, back then they talked uh, that, that they were kind of crude and noisy preaching, probably a lot of shouting and things going on here. So Yeah, and it's fascinating from the little bit of history of this that I know, the nonconformist Christian sects were pretty much in, in communities on their own, especially in places like I... the West Country and in Wales and in parts of the north of England. So before the Industrial Revolution, people really didn't know about each other except in a very indirect way in the middle of the 19th century when people all moved into the cities and moved into factories then all of these various non-conformist sects used to merge together and i i can certainly remember people working class people from northern cities would describe themselves as being either church or chapel church meaning that they're c of e or chapel meaning that they're methodists or maybe baptists and that they come from one of these two distinct traditions the non-conformist or the kind of traditional c of e so it's 
not entirely surprising that there's a bit of a non plus reaction to exactly what might these obscure nonconformists believe or what might they care about. And it, it's funny and also historically quite telling that it, this is the moment when Jack is nonplussed by uh, by this, this strange piety of these Sethians. Right. So, of course, Davidge, similarly nonplussed, hadn't noticed this word painted on the side of the surprise until he'd returned from taking Mrs. Martin to shore. He'd ordered it to be scraped off. Of course, the people he was ordering were among them some Sethians. No one appeared to know who had done it. Everyone had an excuse why it couldn't be removed just then. You know, it's Sunday. I've got my good clothes on. I've got an upset stomach. <laughs> and Auden, one of the Shelmastonians, eventually admitted that he'd done it and was unable to remove it. And the others had all backed him up. They hadn't been drunk. They were well behaved. If anyone went to move to take this vandalism, this graffiti off the side of the ship, then that move would be their last, they said. And Davidge and West hadn't been backed up here by the bosun or the gunner or any of the other petty officers. They were kind of going along with the idea of not bringing bad luck on the ship. And they're stuck. Bless them, it's not a Royal Navy ship. They haven't got a file of Marines and the Cat of Nine Tails. And this is the situation that Jack walks into. Davidge is very apologetic. But Mike, Stephen has to turn to higher authorities, I think, for some advice here. Yeah, I, I love this, that Jack is like, okay, what's going on here? He's going to Stephen. Stephen, of course, turns to Martin, because you know, Martin's a reverend. Certainly, he's studied a lot of theology. And so Martin says that these Sethians are kind of remote descendants of the Valentinian Gnostics. Oh, and, yeah, and, them. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. I've, I've got a couple of their early albums, I think. Yes. <laughs> Well, I, I delved into the Valentinian Gnostics and I thought, oh my gosh, how, how do we even start to get our arms around this? But Martin saves us, he says. But the descent, this descent from the Valentinian Gnostics, is so long, remote, and obscure that there would be little point in tracing it. And I thought, bless you, Reverend Martin. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Martin kind of sums it up for us a little bit. He says that the Sethians believe that Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first sons in the Bible, were brought into being by angels, but that Seth, who was born after Abel's murder, so kind of the next son along, was the Almighty's direct pure creation and not only the ancestor of Abraham and all men now living, but the prototype of our Lord, so that Seth was kind of a first Christ, if you will. Mm. So that the Sethians are kind of thinking, okay, we, we believe in Jesus, but we believe in Seth, who was kind of the original. And they also thought that the angels, that, that like Noah's flood was related to the impurity of angels, not the impurity of people. And so, so that there was kind of this division of people. It's, it's we'll, we'll get into, well, I guess we can talk, Gnostics in general, you know, they said this yep. was a long line of descent from Gnostics. Gnostics in general are kind of a, a real difference between the material world and the spiritual world, between... Right, right physical materiality versus kind of this spiritual and secret knowledge. And that, you know, it's this knowledge, if you will, that saves you as part of this spiritual thing here. So they see the physical world as kind of a lesser thing. And with some of them, the Valentinian Gnostics, there was also kind of a different God. There was the God of the Old Testament and, and the New Testament in a way that was of the material world, but a lesser God than this higher spiritual thing, which is, is, is an incredible 
very complex mythology all of its own here. So, and they kind of take the Bible and recast things so that, you know, Jesus is now kind of not, not dealing with sin and repentance, but with, you know, kind of illusion and uh, enlightenment. And Christ is now this divine being who's taken human form to lead people back to the light with this kind of secret wisdom. And, and Sethians kind of, Valentinians were kind of a first century Gnostic movement. Sethians were a second century um, Gnostic movement. And Sethians over the years, really, these beliefs tampered down a lot. They, they came into a little bit more conformity with more usual Christian thinking here, oh, if you will. Wow. Goodness me. And I, I, I have a godson called Seth. He may be listening. Hello, Seth. Oh, hey, Seth. Um, <laughs> who, who knew it was so complicated being, right. being all about Seth? So this is a lot for Jack to chew on, I think. He takes a walk around the deck, and he thinks that I'm going to have to talk to these people. So he calls the Sethians to come see him. And I, I love how plainly and sincerely he tries to to, to figure out a, a just and a fair and an equitable way forward. They explain their conduct by saying that, well, Seth, and they, they give this little kind of thumb-pointing gesture as they mention his name, Seth had been very good to them in the last voyage. They've all come across considerable riches now and they had wanted to paint his name on the side of the ship as what they called a thank witness they also do the same thing on their homes and their other buildings jack says that he understands wise words from a leader here he understands and points out that since they'd had a few drinks before dinner before the act they might have forgotten the fact that surprise needs to go and sail undetected and might need to deceive the enemy and that that's going to be tricky with this word seth printed in high letters on the side of the ship, they're going to be done out of the chance of their prize money because of the custom of just a few of the crew. And he's saying, it stands to reason that that's not fair on all of the crew. He has this great moment of applying what you might call the wisdom of Solomon. He comes up with the idea of painting a cloth that will be roped across the area. So the name of Seth stays on the ship, but the name of Seth is obscured using some of the same methods that they use to capture the Spartan just in the last couple of chapters. Great work. I love this work by Jack. Really great piece of leadership. He still gets his own bit of access to the superstition, right? The surprise is still, in, in a way, protected by having the name of Seth there, um, but they're still going to be carrying on their, their duty as a letter of Mark. The only remaining thing to take care of is the discontent that's arisen between them and Davidge. And Jack says, you need to go along and apologize to Mr. Davidge for what he calls speaking chuff and murmuring. They say, well, we're happy to do that, sir, but we, we, we don't know how. And Jack says, well, you must go up to him, pull off your hats, as is right, and one of you must say, we ask your pardon, sir, for answering chuff and murmuring. <laughs> I think we all know what murmuring is, and I can kind of visualize their faces, their very humble faces that they're pulling. But chuff was a new word on me, I think, Mike. How about you? I'm completely new yet. I'm I'm with you. And I, I tried to track this one down. And the only chuff I can find reference to is this bird. But huh. interestingly, it's on the Cornish coat of arms. Yeah. It's it's kind of replete in legend. Uh, some folks say that King Arthur never died but turned into a red-billed chuff. Wow. And interestingly, a group of chuffs is called a chattering. <laughs> so so this might be a little O'Brien bird-loving joke to us that that they, you know, they were all chattering amongst each other. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So if anybody out there you know, knows about answering or speaking chuff or yeah. can give us a little more insight here, I'd love to hear that one. Chuff as an adverb, Get on, get on the socials and tell us what you think. 
Right. Mike, by the way, I just want to say this is this is funny. First of all, it's it's funny. We we can do a little bit of gentle mockery here. We get to gently mock the Sethians because their antics are are, are funny. We get to mock Jack a little bit because he and the officers can't get their heads around these sensitivities and these obscure distinctions in the crew's face, and their reaction is comical. Even though, as Navy people themselves, they've got their fair share of obscure pieties and superstitions. And it's funny as well because we're being mocked in a way. Jack and Stephen are mixing with a whole new set of societies and they're learning that their hang-ups and their manners maybe are just as fanciful and just as self-created as the hang-ups and the real bizarre manners of the Sethians. And maybe that goes for us and maybe that goes for others as well. I think we might be coming back to this later on. Yeah, I'm with you, Ian. I feel like O'Brien is holding a mirror up for us to look at ourselves here. Now, it looks like it's Sethians, and it looks like this, but it's us looking back at ourselves. It's really nicely done. Yeah. Well, and and, and we get a little bit of this right away. Jack kind of comments to Stephen that he's he's glad that Killick's not arriving until tomorrow. Stephen and Jack had come down a day early. And, and Jack says he could not have carried on about moral duty to the Sethians if he knew Killick had been listening. And, and he knows that Killick is always listening. So, again, it's mm. that, you know, I'm, I'm being sincere, but I'm also kind of <laughs> you're not. And, and we remember Killick in a recent chapter when Jack was hollering, oh, this is just what I'm waiting for with uh, <laughs> the lack of wind is is on him a bit. So. Stephen is also sorry that Killick's not going to be there sooner because he's really worried they're going to have this gunroom dinner for Mrs. Martin. And Stephen's shirt really is nasty. It, it, it's a discredit to the entire ship. And he just doesn't know what to do because he doesn't have another one. And Jack is like, oh, my gosh, Stephen, how long have you been sailing and you still don't know how the ship works? Just find anybody that you've cured or helped. Give them your shirt and they'll have it all washed up and ready for you to go. And you can just sort of put your bathrobe on in the meantime here. And, and, and you know, they're both really happy about meeting uh, Mrs. Martin. So, you know, the Reverend Nathaniel Martin's wife here in the gun room. And Jack asks Stephen about her. And I love Stephen's answer. Stephen says, oh, she has no pretensions to beauty at all. She has no pretensions of any kind for that matter, intellectual, artistic or social. She's neither tall nor slim, and on occasion she wears spectacles. But she's perfectly well-bred and has so sweet a nature and such a fun, good humor that she is a most valuable companion. And I thought, wow, you know, this is what a great, you know, a great description here. I love this. She's just a good person, which is, I, you know, hey, why don't we start there? <laughs> and, and, and I think O'Brien, again, has sort of peeled away the kind of superficial things that we often look at and Stephen's gotten right to the heart of the matter here so Jack's going to be glad to meet her Stephen's glad to be uh, meeting her and Jack's glad they're going to do it over dinner because he wants to get the ship sailing early tomorrow yeah and Stephen is wondering to himself what's the hurry all of a sudden and he mentions this to Jack he says well we're, we're setting off so soon he says we could swim to St Martin's leaving at the time that we're leaving it's only the fourth The Diane doesn't sail until the 13th. And Jack says, well, hold on a second. Given that she has an excellent commander and a hand-picked crew, there's the chance of an ill wind as we stand off waiting for her. And there's the possibility, who knows, that another French ship with good gunnery might escort her. Therefore, I, Jack, have got a new plan. 
He says he knows that they can't simultaneously fight both sides. He doesn't have time to train more gunners. And we've heard in recent chapters how he's still molding the Ulster Prizes and the Shemelstonians together into, into gun crews. Not only can they not fight both sides of the ship, they don't have sharpshooters. They don't have Marines as well. And Stephen wonders aloud why it is that Jack had never hired more men to fill in these roles of the Marines, for example. And he realizes in a little aside to himself that actually Jack is just trying to spare his friend's pocketbook. He's trying to save money. So Jack's got this plan. He's going to leave early and he's going to try, instead of waiting for her, to go into the harbor and cut her out. He says, you know, the first step in any plan is actually getting and finding that ship. And he says, it's a lot easier to do when she's docked in the harbor than when you're trying to find her out in the ocean. So his plan is to tell the crew all about the Diane, you know, kind of draw this prodigious, wonderful chart about all this. And then he says, run down to Polkham or any of those little lonely coves, according to the weather, moor the ship and practice cutting her out with the boats night after night till every man knows exactly where he is to be and what he is to do. Stephen loves the plan and says, you know, why don't we hire some fine, stout, desperate fellows to help them? And Jack says, you know, you know, we're not going to need that because Babington and the other ships with Babington will provide volunteers. They'll have naval discipline and boats. But Jack hopes there won't be too many of them. And and he's kind of seems to be hesitant here. And he says, because, you know, I, I don't want them talking or making noise. And we're thinking, Something's going on in Jack's mind here. And, <laughs> and and I'm wondering a little bit too, Ian, you know, usually we're kind of looking, you know, to see where, where the surprise is and where she's going here. But I think we're, we're kind of missing some references here. We are. but So Shelmerston, we think the, the consensus of the, the gun room and everybody else on the internet is that Shelmerston is probably the harbour town of Appledore on the north coast of Devon. Interesting, though, Polkham isn't a real place any more than Shelmerston is. So we could speculate a little bit about what kind of a place might Polkham be. It's going to be isolated. It's going to be a fairly enclosed harbour. Tom Horn's excellent Cannonade.net website, it turns out, doesn't have a candidate. So we did a bit of thinking, and we also went online, and we asked some of you, the listeners. So thank you for joining us as we dig down into our own little rabbit hole here about where could this place Polkham be. Now, there's a place called Polperro on the coast of Cornwall, which a mile or two inland from there, there is a place, the only place in the UK that has a name similar, called Polcombe. Polperro looks like a nice sheltered little harbour. The name makes some phonetic sense, but Polperro has been a pretty busy fishing port for centuries. Wouldn't really count as secluded. Um, Tom Horn, bless him, very kindly got back in touch with us on Twitter and said, here's, here's my long list of cums that I have considered. Um, Elicum, Maidencum, Babacum, Holcum, Branscum, Mothercum, Salcum, and Boscum. And there are many more cums besides in the Southwest. He couldn't get past the long list. Well, th- thank you for sharing, Tom. Right. Ilfracum in North Devon has, has the name cum on the end of it. It's very sheltered, but it, a little bit like... Paul Parrot has a fairly active harbour. It is geographically quite close to Appledore, which is believed to be the same as Shelmerston. Um, there's also a nice cove called Watermouth just east of Ilfracombe, which fits the bill quite nicely. But Mike, I'm still not quite feeling it. Some more suggestions from our listeners online took us round to the south coast, quite a long way away from Shelmerston slash Appledore, but still in the West Country. There's a good case for Solcombe, which was suggested by Nick Caro on Facebook. Hello, Nick. 
Solcombe, also a pretty busy fishing harbour, wouldn't ever have been very isolated. Adam Quinnan on Facebook suggested Bigbury on Sea. Bigbury's quite a good candidate there. It's pretty sheltered. Um, not quite as sheltered as is described in the book, I don't think. It does have an offshore island, uh, a little bit like Old Scratch. And there's a little bay just around the corner called Mothcombe, which could, or Mothercombe, which could be a candidate. For scenic appeal, though, we quite like going a little bit further east to the Jurassic coast of Dorset. Tristan James on Twitter got back to us to nominate the aptly named Man of War Beach, which is just next to a very famous rock formation called Durdle Door on the Dorset coast. Man of War Beach sounds great, but if we're in the Jurassic coast, my favourite, Mike, is the next cove along. Quite a famous place, Lulworth Cove in Dorset. Is a beautifully, almost totally enclosed circular cove. Um, there's no harbour there. There wouldn't, in history, have been very much human habitation there. These days, it's super over-inhabited because it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and there are hundreds of thousands of visitors a year. But back in 1813, 1814, it would have been pretty secluded at Lulworth Cove. And it's also pretty fitting as a place to do rehearsals for warlike manoeuvres because it's just a couple of miles from a famous ghost village called Tyneham, which was used for rehearsals of the D-Day parachute drops in 1944. So other military minds had the same idea in the same part of the world. All right, so we've got a candidate here for where we're headed. And, and we were remembering that, you know, Jack was sort of saying, you know, I hope there's not too many folks from the other boats joining us. And, and now I think Jack opens up a little bit more. He tells Stephen that he's a little worried that Babington's zeal and, and affection may lead him to want to join the expedition. Now, that's problematic because if Babington, as a Royal Navy officer, joins, then he gets the glory and Jack gets written as a, you know, kind of an afterthought on this story since he's a privateer. Now, Jack knows he would not be able to refuse the offer if Babington makes it because, you know, a successful mission would guarantee that Babington becomes a post captain. Hmm. Now, Jack's hoping that, uh, you know, that Babington will see the situation for itself and decide for himself. Uh, he, he says some stuff, you know, he kind of knows that Williams has a great heart, but that a great heart doesn't necessarily mean a brilliant intelligence, as O'Brien writes, capable of instantly assessing the relative value of the near certainty of promotion on the one hand and the remote possibility of reinstatement on the other. So Jack's thinking, you know, if if he thought it through, if Babington thought it through, he'd realize that with Babington's money and family and parliamentary interests, he's absolutely going to become a post-captain. He doesn't need this for sure, but that Jack may never get another chance like this again in life. Fantastic. It's it's interesting. The I, I wonder about the parallel between Jack's connection to the dimly perceived views of members of the Royal Navy and the kind of indirectly wished for actions of William Babington and his crew and their kind of silent obeisance towards the dimly perceived views of uh, of a deity like Seth. And maybe we're meant to draw a parallel here. I don't know. Mm. Stephen tells Jack that all these night exercises are going to be a great idea. Jack says, at least it's better than rushing it, uh, like a bull in a china shop without a plan, which is a classic Aubreyism. Right. He asks Stephen if he agrees or not um, about Babington. Does, does, does Babington, he says, have, have a quick, lively apprehension? And Stephen says, I love Babington, but the only person who might believe that of him is Mrs. Ray. <laughs> That's his, <laughs> his, his paramour, his lover. 
However, Babington as a naval ally would be great on the raid. The crew, we learn, also like the plan. And they have this plan for deception of whoever's on guard in St. Martin. They're going to have their two jerseymen, Duchamp and Chevenement, call out in French whenever we get challenged moving in close to St. Martin's. They're going to call out something like hands and supplies for Diane. And Mike, Duchamp is a pretty regular French name. Chevenement bumped on me a little bit. I'm thinking that's not your regular, you know, Lebrun type, you know, regular person's French name. And I wondered if it might be specific or might be intentional. So I went quickly looking. Uh, A very, very minor rabbit hole. There's a fairly famous French politician who was active in the 80s and 90s, Jean-Pierre Chevenement. He's from the Alsace region, the German speaker. He was famously a kind of a left-wing Gaullist. He was in favor of republicanism, in favor of French nationalism, but from a socialist perspective in the 1980s when O'Brien was thinking and living in France and writing about these books. In the 80s, Jean-Pierre Chevenement was a prominent National Assembly member, a junior member of the government. So O'Brien might well have read about him, at least enough to cotton onto his characteristic, interesting-sounding name. Jean-Pierre Chevenement is still alive. He's the president of what is called the Citizen and Republican Movement in France. He's had a a presidential candidacy in the past. I think Jean-Pierre Chevenement would make a really fascinating conversation partner at dinner for Stephen Maturin. What do you say? Well, I think so too. You know, it's amazing the things that pass for Republicans nowadays. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as as they're, you know, hands and supplies for Diane, it puts me in mind of some supplies for us and our listeners out there. Perhaps it's time to restock our uh, captain stores and, and take a short break. Absolutely. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers Welcome back. I hope your stores are replenished. We are at Polcombe with the surprise, Her Majesty's hired vessel, the surprise. The breeze stops and they tow the ship in, inside the cove. All these preparations come into play. They lay out buoys outlining the the extremities of St. Martin's Harbour and all the other landmarks. Everything is set up and the crews are really impatient to get to it. They ask Jack if they can row back in and attack the surprise. Jack replies, very well but it must be done thorough pace. A line from stern to stem, pull easy, all hands to row soft and row dry, not to wet your mate's priming. Not a word, no, not a single goddamn whisper. This is not Bartholomew Fair, and the first man to speak may swim home on his own. I love Jack's really, really showing leadership and direction here. I'm, I, I'll be there, and I'll be rowing really quiet and really dry. <laughs> they practice all these details. They row in for miles they attack the surprise as they would have done the Diane with his blood-curdling shriek as they board. Jack is timing the attack, and he's also asking Stephen and Martin what they think of the blood-curdling shriek. And they say it was indeed unexpected. It was indeed terrifying, especially to Jack's new cook. And Stephen and Martin also agree it would have been even more terrifying if they hadn't been able to hear Joe Place's chuckle from a fair <laughs> way off. <laughs> Now, we're yeah. going to hear more about the cook in a short while. But, Mike, this this is just the beginning of them. This is like, you know, a Hollywood Special Forces movie. They're going to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse with this thing. 
Right, right. And this is, you know, this is the practice make perfect part. This is, you know, that Jack wants them to have absolute muscle memory, all kinds of contingencies prepared for it, everything. So they're, you know, they're after this. They're attacking the ship twice a night. During the day, they're practicing with cutlasses and boarding axes and firing pistols and and generally laying about sometimes. The, the idea is, look, okay, we're not going to be on, you know, active all the bells ship duty. We're really going to be focused on this cutting out expedition. And and some of this surprises these people who are now way up high on land, looking down into the cove and watching them from the sheep pasture. Um, O'Brien writes, the nearby hamlets learned that a pirate was moored in Polcom Cove, intending to ravish the countryside, carrying off maidens to Barbary. At this the young women for some miles around hurried to the edge of the precipice to view their ravishers and perhaps to implore their mercy, while a revenue cutter suspecting <laughs> uncustom goods ran in and had to submit to the ultimate humiliation of being heaved off the tail of old scratch reef by two cables spliced end to end and carried out to the surprises capstan. So <laughs> a, a little respite of O'Brien humor here with the maids and the revenue cutter. <laughs> Oh, ravishing. Oh, ravishing. Right. Very good. The, the practice is going on. And just like observing and timing broadsides, Jack is observing and timing and coaching these attacks. He's sitting in Stephen's skiff watching all these boat attacks go back and forth. He has the men on the ship who are not part of the attack crew adding a little bit of verisimilitude by fighting back with swabs, with mops, in other words. He makes the crews and alternates attacking and defending the ship so everybody gets the chance to play offense and defense he has to rescue a few repelled boarders who fall over the side uh, five in one night which is really adding to jack's total of numbers of souls that he's pulled out of the water all this work had certainly helped with jack's fitness it had helped his powerful body but as o'brien said it did even more good to his wounded heart and mind since there was no time for the misery of retrospection nor for the correcting phantasms of unrealistic success that so very often struggled for expression. And I'm remembering, Mike, that Jack came to quite new heights of self-knowledge and contemplation of himself in the last chapter, and I think right. he's learning and profiting from that here. Jack's appetite for food was back. His new cook, Addy, and the captain's stores that had Killick had brought with the prize money all answered very well. So, Jack is feeling pretty good and he's getting in some creature comforts as well. How about Stephen and Martin? Well, it's, it's nice. You know, everybody is so busy with all, you know, preparing for the cutting out, you know, Martin and Matron really don't have any roles in that. They're going to be, you know, tending to the wounded during all this. So they're spending their days out on old scratch, which is perfect. Stephen has been, you know, in, in kind of the cold English countryside, he's now sunbathing. He's such a, a you know sun worshiper, and and Martin, of course, and Stephen as well, naturalizing all over this reef. And Martin, in conversation, says he's surprised by the number of religious sects on board. So we're back to this theological cornucopia here. He says he was ready for Gnostics, Anabaptists, Sethians, Muggletonians, and even those who follow Joanna Southcott, as well as the odd Jew or Mohammedan. You know, all those he expected, and, and that's quite a plethora. You know, Ian, Joanna Southcott? Um, boy, now this is this is one, you know, everybody else, I was like, yep, yep, yep. Wait, who's she? <laughs> Well, she, she's she's a Wikipedia search well worth digging into if you're curious. Jo Joanna Southcott, we learned, was a self-described religious prophetess. 
born in Devon, that is to say, in the same part of England that we're talking about right here. She announced to the world that she was, in fact, the woman described in the book of Revelation as the woman of the apocalypse and published her prophetic writings in rhyme. Um, She seemed to have some of the hallmarks of a fairly successful charlatan. She went around London later in her life selling relics. At the age of 64, she claimed to have become pregnant with the new Messiah, who she named the Shiloh of Genesis. And I think most people rejected her and her teachings. But it stuck with some people. As late as 1881, there were still Southcottians, as they're known, in parts of England. There was a bunch of them living in Kent who were famed for their long beards and good manners, which might could also be a, almost be a description of our Sethians. Right. So, Southcott followers, still a real thing. I don't think they're around anymore. Muggletonians, that sounds like a reference to another work of literature that we know right, of. Right, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this going, wait, Muggletonians? No, Harry Potter? And and uh, no, it's not Harry Potter, although there's a great deal of discussion on the internet as to maybe, maybe, you know, maybe this is where J.K. Rowling got this idea. But these were two non-magic, you know, they, they weren't people who worshipped non-magical people. <laughs> they were two itinerant tailors in London who believed themselves kind of like Joanna Southcott to be the last two prophets from the book of Revelation, and they're here to proclaim the end times. Now, they did not have Joanna's commercial instincts. You know, they went around blessing people, but also damning a lot of people, which does not do, you know, great. Well, I don't know. Nowadays, maybe it does do great things for your uh, for your commercial success. <laughs> I'll, I'll rewind that there. But here, it's funny. There weren't many of them. But interestingly, and I, I didn't jot this down, but I think I remember that the last Bungletonian kind of known was also in Kent, like in the 1970s and still had wow. lots of records there. But yeah, the Bungletonians fascinatingly small little group spent an inordinate amount of time writing tracks and putting down the Quakers. And I'm thinking who puts down the Quakers for crying out loud? You know, what, what would I do without my oatmeal in the morning? Come on now. (laughs) Quakers are just great people, but the Muggletonian small group didn't like it. And the Quakers actually paid a lot of attention to them, but neither here nor there. Now we also have, he's thrown in the Anabaptists here, the Anabaptists, Anabaptists, kind of rejected infant baptism, kind of a mainstay of Catholicism, England, uh, you know, the Anglican Church, other you know, Lutherans and others. But they were big believers in what they called believer baptism. So after you're an adult, so you think Anabaptists, oh, they must be just like Baptists. No, Anabaptists and Baptists didn't get along either. So it is fascinating how O'Brien holds this mirror up to us. Everybody is, oh, we share this belief, but we don't like each other. Oh, cess break into two Two streams, one that writes the S forward, one that writes it backwards. And, yeah. Yeah. So Ju- yeah, to use a Monty Python reference, the Judean people's front and the people's front of Judea. Right, that's right, that's right. I I used to walk down the street in, in my neighborhood, and there was on one corner the Church of God, and on the other corner, directly across the street, the Church of Christ. And I thought, gee, I would have thought they went to the same church. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> We're not done, though, with this exploration of of the religious um, specificity. It's not just the British. It's not just the kind of white English European types who have these bizarre sects. We learn from Martin that there's a devil worshipper aboard the Surprise. Stephen is also surprised at this. And it's Jack's cook. Jack's cook, Adi, believes that God made the world. He believes that Muhammad is a prophet and Abraham and the patriarchs and so on are real. But he thinks that God forgave the fallen Satan and restored him to his rightful place 
running matters in the world. And now Adi is a, a, a Dashni, so he's from somewhere in between Armenia and Kurdistan. And Martin has noticed that he's actually a very gentle, affectionate and loving person and says, well, maybe then the Dashni don't practice what they preach. And Stephen, again, holding a mirror up to all of the rest of humanity, says, well, who does indeed? If Adi had an accurate knowledge of the creed we profess to follow, and if he compared it with the way we live, he might look at us with as much surprise as we look at him. Yeah, well Boy. <laughs> yeah, here's here's a time to pause. I love this. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. Let let each of us with uh, you know, with no sin, cast the first stone here. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Well, Martin and and Stephen are watching the birds, but then they notice that Jack and the ship's crew are going through this really tough process of getting the boats up and then lowering over the side. We know that we've only got davits on the back, so for Stephen's skiff, and and they're trying to do this silently, which is kind of against all of their uh, practice here to four and all, all of their custom and they're having a really hard time with it and they you know they're dropping boats and and this turns out to be the last summer day it gives way to rainy days but the attack practices continue but now between the rain and kind of everybody really getting into it there are many more casualties and now Stephen and martin are busy all the time they're kind of spelling each other in the sick bay and at one point, as they're kind of switching, Stephen asks why in the world Jack continues this practice. And even more curious, why the men are following him. You know, they, there's not that much money to gain from taking the Diane. And Martin says, and, and O'Brien writes, perhaps you are so used to your friend that you no longer see what a great man he is to the sailors. If he can leap and bound at night in the pouring rain, defying the elements, they would be ashamed not to do the same. Though I have seen some almost weep at the second assault or when their desire to go through the cutlass exercise once more, I doubt they would do it so much for anyone else. It is a quality some men possess. And Stephen says, you know, I dare say you are in the right of it. Ah, but, says Stephen, if you were to ask me to come out in a rowing boat on a night like this, even wrapped in a waterproof garment and wearing a cork jacket, I should decline. And Martin says, I should never have the moral courage. So, right. He, he means never have the moral courage to to refuse. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, if Jack's going to do that, I'm going with him. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to remind us of the the stature and the authority that Jack's now got. He's revved himself up to this pitch of planning and authority and urgency and action. And now everyone's going. I, I wouldn't say no to the fella. You know, I couldn't turn him down. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about this relative to the Jack of a few books ago and his self doubts and you yeah. know where his luck gone and what's going to happen. Boy, this is this is fabulous. So. Quite a few times in these middle chapters of the book, we get a little contrast between the favorable building up of you know new confidence and new resourcefulness and new virtue, if you like, for Jack. And meanwhile, in the background, some rumblings of discontent relating to Stephen. And it's noticeable here we switch straight from Jack is authoritative and positive and energizing. Stephen, meanwhile, has to think about his patience. And that takes us to a couple of dark places. 
Good news to begin with, one particular patient, young Edwards, who came very close to losing his leg in a fall from the top where he just about bounced off the mizzen stay and that just about saved him. He's doing pretty well. Stephen, however, is not pleased that his laudanum isn't working and he's refusing to take a larger dose to get back up to the effect that he remembers. The weather, meanwhile, has cut him off from old scratch where he's been doing his botanizing. And meanwhile, he's upset with Padine. He says he noticed Padine below decks carrying a bottle of brandy under his jacket, blushing with guilt. And Stephen recognizes pattern. It's common to lots of Irish drinkers. He would really like to get Padine sober. He attributes Padine's change of mood to alcohol. He calls it confidence, which is no very amiable quality in the Irish sense of the word. But unfortunately, as we know, and as Stephen really hasn't twigged yet, Padine's addicted to Lord Num. He's already a 60 drops a day man, and he seems to be on the on the path to, to much worse. Right, right. Yeah, the next morning, Stephen does manage to get his skiff over to Old Scratch. And and the weather, all that rain and everything has really put it in bloom here. And, and Stephen's soaking in the nature and the plants and the birds. And and he says, then, and, and by the way, we, we do hear the chuffs are one of them. So maybe hmm. O'Brien is kind of pointing out, hey guys, look. But it, O'Brien writes, then his eye wandered out over the sea and the lanes that showed upon its prodigious surface apparently following no pattern and leading nowhere. And he felt rising in his heart that happiness he had quite often known as a boy, and even now at long intervals, particularly at dawn. The nacreous blue of the sea was not the source, though he rejoiced in it, nor the thousand other circumstances he could name, but something wholly gratuitous. A corner of his mind urged him to inquire into the nature of this feeling, but he was most unwilling to do so, partly from a dread of blasphemy. And parenthetically, O'Brien writes, the words state of grace were worse than grotesque applied to a man of his condition. Yeah. He says, <laughs> but then even more from a wish to do nothing to disturb it. And and just as Stephen is saying, you know, I don't want to disturb this, this peregrine falcon, you know, dashes across, grabs a rock dove in mid-flight, and so it's disturbed anyways. But it brings Stephen kind of out of this reverie, and he sees Jack, you know, kind of diving off the side of the ship naked and swimming out to meet him. And and on, along the way, Jack is joined by two seals, and Stephen, you know, as, as Jack kind of comes ashore with Stephen, gives him joy of his seals. He says, it is the universal opinion of the good and the wise that there is nothing more fortunate than the company of seals. I love this little personification of seals. Reminds me a bit of uh, Desolation Island when they were surrounded by petrels, and Stephen says, oh, petrels are very discerning. They can't abide the least negotiary. <laughs> but I, I also got a little callback there to this episode of the peregrine taking the rock dove in flight reminds me of the story of Jack seeing the tortoises. Um, I can't remember, was that Treason's Harbor or Ionian Mission? And the, one of the tortoises is taken up by a bird of prey and dropped and smashed to death on the road. And the characters encountering animals in states of jeopardy seems to be a a signal that Patrick O'Brien likes to use. It's no coincidence. I think that this rock dove was headed North and ah. north is the direction that Stephen's headed um, when he uh, when he heads over to Sweden, as he's going to later in the book. So I'm sure this is another little signal of some some jeopardy and some foreboding for Stephen in amongst all the good vibes for Jack. Well spotted. 
Wow. Anyway, thank you. Jack asks if Stephen's forgotten about breakfast. And Stephen owns up to the fact that I actually I am thinking about breakfast. Here are all the things that I'm thinking about, you know, coffee and soft tack and so on. Jack says, well, you wouldn't have had them until dinner because your boat's stranded and it's too far for you to swim. <gasps> and St Stephen is jokingly, self-mockingly realizing that there's tides around here. The sea has receded. I am amazed. Jack says, they tell me it does so twice a day in these parts. It is technically known as the tide. Ha! Why, your soul to the devil, Jack Aubrey, said Stephen, who had been brought up on the shores of the Mediterranean, that unebbing sea. He struck his hand to his forehead and exclaimed, there must be some imbecility, some weakness here, but perhaps I shall grow used to the tide in time. Tell me, Jack, did you notice that the boat was, as who should say, marooned, and did you then leap into the sea? And Jack says, I believe it was generally observed aboard. Come, clap onto the gunnel and we'll run her down. I can almost smell the coffee from here. So Stephen's been pointed at and laughed at by the whole crew. And Jack very, very kindly is coming out to help his friend and to bring him back to society. We love it. Absolutely. Well, back on board, Stephen's drinking his coffee and he's surprised to find them pulling up the anchor since Diane still doesn't sail for another three days. And, and Jack apologizes for not discussing it with Stephen earlier. Jack explains that he does not want to be late. He doesn't want to risk wind or storms delaying them. And he also has thought more about this and thinks that the Diane's officers and midshipmen are likely to be on shore partying on the night of the 12th, the evening before they're going to be sailing huh. away for many months. And he thinks, you know, that would be a much easier and less bloody time to cut her out. Yeah. Well, so Jack's plan is coming into play, but he really needs the cooperation of the other officers who might be in and around this squadron that's off of St. Martin's. He wants to consult with Babington and those other captains on the evening of the 11th. The next dawn, then, the squadron will sail in for the day while Surprise is further out. She's going to be changing her long guns for carronades. On the night of the 12th, as the squadron comes in, the plan is that the Surprise will head to shore with no lights and boatloads of volunteers will be there from the other ships. This is Jack still presuming and planning that he can get these volunteers from these other ships, but I think he knows the situation with Babington pretty well. The plan is that just before the small boats go in, Pullings will take the surprise around the side of the mole. She'll start firing as if the troops were about to land on this isthmus, this narrow strip of land, which is what they'd done earlier in the war. He's going to fly a blanks so that they don't knock anybody's property down. And meanwhile, the boats will come in through the main harbour entrance and cut out the Diane. All Jack needs for this plan to work is Babington's approval. So once again... Babington and the Navy is to Jack, as Seth is to the Shelmastonians. So Stephen then asks Jack if he doubts Babington's goodwill, because it's an obvious potential weakness in the plan here. Jack says no, he has no doubts, but he adds that William is no longer Jack's direct subordinate, and he's very sensitive, is Jack, about the, the, the finer points of etiquette between people who are in the chain of command. Pullings, meanwhile, comes to report that the boats are alongside, ready to tow the ship out of the cove so they can set off. Very well, said Jack. Carry on, if you please, Mr Pullings. And then, hesitantly, with a hesitant smile, fair, fair stands the wind for France. End of chapter five. Ooh. 
Ian, so is is this, you know, hesitantly with a hesitant smile, fair, fair stands the win for France? This has got to be something. It is, it is. It's a quote of a quote, if you like. To, to those of us who can remember reading the novels of H.E. Bates, um, H.E. Bates wrote novels like The Darling Buds of May that were very, very successful television series back in the 90s. Um, H.E. Bates wrote a book in 1944 called Fair Stood the Wind for France. Now, 1944 is clearly not contemporary with the canon, so Fair Stood the Wind for France is itself a quote from a poem. Um, it's a quotation from the Ballad of Agincourt, somewhat obscure poem written in the 17th century by Michael Drayton. So here goes with a little bit of the Ballad of Agincourt. Fair stood the wind for France when we our sails advance, nor now to prove our chance longer will tarry. But putting to the main at Co, the mouth of Seine, with all his martial train, landed King Harry. Ah, so this is Henry V time, that's who Harry is. This is on the way to Agincourt. This is anticipation of this great historic battle. And it seems like all the good vibes here for Jack are building up quite quickly. But as we've already said, O'Brien has cleverly kept up some very deep, dark jeopardy for Stephen. Mike, this book isn't over yet. It, it really isn't, Ian. And I'm, I'm kind of sitting here, like you say, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Jack was just like, you know, coming up. Uh, I'm thinking of the casino and the slot machines, like all, all three, bing, bing, bing on his last mission out. You know, so what's going to happen on this mission out? But as you say, you know, as excited as I am about that, you know, we keep getting that kind of dark underlying rumbling with Stephen and heading north to Diane and this, you know, peregrine falcon. And what's going to happen here? I, I don't know. Ian, I, I think there's nothing for it. But to pick this book up and turn to chapter six next week, what would you say to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, I should like that of all things. Quakers for crying out loud. You know, what what would I do without my oatmeal in the morning? Come on now. You got, <laughs> yeah. Quakers are just great people, but the Muggletonian small group.